But remember, we're acting as both the supplier and the distributor and making that 78 to 80%. So that margin that we're making is where you really start to play around with what is the scale that we have now versus what is the scale that we would want to have in the future. And that can pretty much range anywhere from 30 to 80%. Welcome to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping beverage alcohol businesses grow and thrive. I'm Felicity Carter. And I'm Erica Ducey. This season, we're focused on drink startups. How does a brand go from idea to launch and then plot a path to success? What hurdles do brands face along the way and how can they overcome those challenges? Stay tuned as we investigate. So, Erica, what are we talking about this week? So, this week, I had a really interesting conversation with Christy Frank, who, again, is the founder of Hamlet Hound, the RTD brand that we are following throughout the season. And we talked about money. Right. Money, 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 money. My favorite topic. What did you learn about money? Well, you know, we... We promised at the outset of this podcast that we were going to dive into the money issue, rip off the Band-Aid, and get into details, and this episode delivers. Oh, brilliant. Okay, so what is the thing that she said that most surprised you? I think the thing that was most surprising is the numbers that she's using, which are far lower than I thought. So essentially, you know, our conversation covers a lot of ground from understanding the investment costs to how do you determine pricing for the product to what margins look like in the business. I mean, we get into a lot of the nitty gritty that is very difficult to find out in this industry. And we really cover a ton of ground. So I think that people are going to be pleasantly surprised that the investment that you need to start a brand is not as significant as one might think. In fact, I was off by several hundreds of thousands of dollars (laughs) than was my initial conception of of what it would take. That's really interesting. But, you know, I, I do know of people who've burned through hundreds of thousands of dollars, but of course they don't have Christie's knowledge of the market. So maybe that's the key thing. Right. I think that That's an important point. I think for a lot of people who are coming into the industry, what I'm learning is that there's just so many pitfalls. And this is one of those places where you just don't know what you don't know. There's so many ways that you can screw up the margin and the pricing and and the markups on products and then, you know, find out down the line that you're going to have to raise your prices or that you're going to make significantly less than you thought you were. So it's a pretty thorny area. And it's only compounded by the regulatory issues and, you know, the necessity of working in the three-tier system where every single tier and some of the in-between tiers, like modified DTC, they all get a cut. Mm. It's incredibly complex. I think it'll be an interesting listen for anyone in the industry. Right. Let's get into it. And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At The Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. 
Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap, compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit ExcelPay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Welcome back to the podcast, Christy. Great to be here. So today we're talking all about money. (laughs) Everyone's favorite and least favorite topic, what it takes to start and run a drinks brand. Money, 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 money. Are you ready? Nobody ever wants to talk about it. It's kind of amazing. (laughs) It really is. So, I mean, this is such an important topic that I think just doesn't get enough play. I think there's just like, I don't know what it is. There's somewhat of a reticence to talk about money, but honestly, why else would people get into the business if not to make some money? And it just seems to me that there's so much sort of secrecy around this topic that I am glad we can, as we've advertised, rip the Band-Aid off. So here we go. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about Hamlet Hound. For listeners who are just tuning in, Hamlet Hound is a new RTD brand, and we're going to be following it throughout the season. And Christy is the founder of Hamlet Hound. So Christy, walk me through the initial investment in Hamlet Hound and and what went into it. The initial plan for Hamlet Hound was to be able to self-finance it. And backing into that, that had certain implications for how we were going to build it because we're lucky enough to have enough money to self-finance it, but we don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to put into this brand straight out of the gate. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You're not you're not competing with Elon Musk out there? <laughs> you know, although I, I, I feel like some brands do have access to that money straight out of the gate or much more quickly than we think we will. So if you have it, you kind of don't want to talk about it. But if you don't have it, there's not much to talk about. I don't totally, know. totally. Yeah, yeah. It is a conundrum. Yeah. So in, in our case, we... And I say we because my my husband was very involved in this. We didn't have heaps and heaps of cash to be able to do it, but we did have about 25 years of my experience in the business and about 25 years of his experience within finance and with engineering. So kind of the the challenge we put forward was, can we make all that experience worth a certain amount of money? Mm-hmm. I'll just dive into the numbers, sort of souped nuts to get through the first production run it was about probably about $40,000 to get it started. And that included things like our trademark lawyer who happened to be a friend. So that's probably lower than it would have been otherwise. That included our licensing fees where we were working with a lawyer who we worked with for years for other licenses within the industry. So that was a pretty, I won't say we got a discount on that, but it was a pretty easy working relationship where we kind of knew how to work with her. That also included our brand development in terms of the logo. You know, some people might have to hire a creative agency, but because of my years at Hennessy, I know how to write a brief. I know how to think about that. So I was able to brief in a creative to come up with the to come up with the logo without necessarily having to go to an outside agency to put together the brief. Mm-hmm. That would also include 
So like the, the licenses, the lawyers, the trademark lawyer, the graphic design, the permits, all of that sort of stuff together was probably about 15K before we even had a can in our hands to develop what this product was going to be. Yeah. And so part of that must have also been working with a co-packer as Hamlet Hound doesn't have its own distillery. So what does that look like from a cost structure perspective? Well, so everything that I just talked about was everything before for the initial product development. Uh So what came after that was actually developing the product and working with the co-packer. And we would call those our direct costs. And that involved the bourbon, the actual bourbon that's part of the product, the syrup development, the materials for the syrup, the cans themselves, the labels, and the actual co-packer fees. And all of that was probably to get through to the first run. That was probably like another you know, $15,000 to get to our first production run of about 250 cases. Oh, wow. And so you said the total amount was like 40000 So we've just accounted for like 30. What was the remainder there? There would be rent. There would be an accountant. There would be our October machine uh-huh. we had purchased when we thought we were initially going to do a first run for ourselves. So, you know, that probably gets you to about closer to 40. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty substantial amount, I think, for a small entrepreneur, but it's not in the millions. So that actually makes me feel Mm -hmm. like there's more opportunity to get into the industry. But I think one thing that people may not realize is that the expenses only continue from there. So talk to me about continued expenses. Like, after that first run with a co-packer, talk to me a little bit about run sizes, their kind of overall costs, and how that changes as you scale up. Our first run was about 250 cases. And then our second run, we did 300 cases of the bourbon and cola and then 300 cases of the rye and ginger. Both of those count as separate runs, like a single product is a single run. Scale would be about 1,700 cases. So in our case with the co-packer, we're paying the same amount of money whether we're doing 250 cases or whether we're doing 1,700 cases. Oh, wow. So we made the decision to take a hit on our cost per unit, but we didn't want to do a huge run without having some sort of proof of concept. Mm -hmm. So in that case, we were also then making it up, making it up on the back end because this is a a New York farm product, which means we are self-distributing it. So normally when you're distributing, you will have your manufacturer, which is us. You will have a distributor, which takes a cut. You'll have a retailer, which takes a cut. And it all gets marked up, you know, turtles all the way down. Because we had decided to do this as a New York farm product, we knew that at least for as long as we could handle it, we would be taking both the manufacturer's margin and the distributor's margin. So the higher unit costs, because we had a smaller run, we were able to deal with that. That was a strategic decision because we knew we would be making the margin through that distribution channel. Interesting. So how do margins factor into DTC plans? I mean, we've talked a little bit about like, you know, this sort of idea of like the pallet versus the package shipping to people, you know, in farther flung locations. In terms of putting together your go-to-market strategy, how much did DTC factor in? Well, we, in, in our case, we're very much not a DTC brand. Mm -hmm. We are in the sense that we are 
a manufacturer that is able to sell direct to retailers and to restaurants and direct to consumers. But for us, DTC, true, true direct to consumer in the sense of I can go online and I can order this online and have it shipped to my house. Very, very, very little for a couple reasons. One, it's a spirit brand. So to be able to ship it's a regulatory, it, it's kind of tricky. There are perhaps ways to do it, but it's expensive. All those margins that I had gone through in terms of manufacturer and the distributor and the retailer, now you kind of have to add another little chunk in there as well because most DTC has to be three-tier compliant. And so we're not even going to go down that. But more importantly is that we looked at our margin per can our margin per case per se, and we looked at what it would cost to ship. And it's not inexpensive to ship a product like this. So if your margin doesn't really support your shipping costs, then even before you're talking about acquisition costs long term, it just it's not going to be a profitable endeavor. Even if you get your shipping costs as low as possible, if they're still costing more than your margin, you're never going to be able to make money. So I guess the idea, the phrase I've heard is, are you a pallet? business or are you a package business? And if you're selling $100, $150, $200, $300 bottles of whiskey or wine, then you can actually consider some sort of DTC relationship because your margin and your shipping costs fall in line. But in our case, we're really much more of a pallet business. And the way that people shop for alcohol to a large extent is still off the shelf. So we use DTC as a way to perhaps say that we've got sort of national coverage if we start to have a press plan. But as our main go-to-market strategy, it's much more classic, get it on the shelf, get it on the menu. And that means eventually working with a distributor. And Christy, we see these modified DTC platforms like Speakeasy and Reserve Bar. How did those play into your planning? Oh, yeah. So I guess modified DTC is the correct term. I kind of struggle with it. A lot of times you'll hear them called three-tier compliant direct-to-consumer platforms, which kind of seems like an oxymoron because if you're three-tier compliant, that's the very definition of not direct-to-consumer. I've thought about them. It might be something that once we expand our distribution a little bit and want to have sort of the semblance of national distribution, they might make sense. But the reality of how they work is that, you know, from the end consumer standpoint, it looks like you're buying direct from the brand. But we would really be selling it to a distributor that's selling it to a retailer and that order is sort of routed all through that food chain to get to the end consumer. So they feel like they're buying direct from us, but all of those margins still have to come into play as well as the modified DTC three-tier compliant platform has to make some money. So either we're making less money or our end customer is paying more money. So it's something that we're considering, but it's just, you know, it's not quite as straightforward as it might seem. And when you're building your pricing model, what are some of the margin pressures that you should consider? Well, when you're building your pricing model, it's important to sort of have a pretty good idea of all of the margins that you're going to see through all of the players so that end recommended shelf price is what it's actually going to be. You know, in my retail days, I've seen when an importer or a supplier has been self-distributing or distributing through like one of these service providers and they start to work with a, a proper distributor and suddenly they didn't calculate that margin fully into their shelf price. And you'll see the price to the end consumer jump from five to five, seven, 
even $10. And, you know, you can easily bring your price down, but going up once you've sort of established your price to the end consumer and more importantly to the retailer, that's really, really hard to do. So we, you want to make sure we tried very hard to make sure that we were baking all of that in. We still, even with all these years in the business, wound up slightly miscalculating how a would-be distributor might consider the fees of moving a product into the warehouse and out of the warehouse. So we had to do an adjustment that I think it took our recommended our recommended price up by like a dollar a can. But this was so early in the process and it didn't really change what our sort of price bracket was. So it really wasn't a big deal. But if you've already got national distribution or you're about to talk to a distributor about some sort of national distribution and your price is now going up a buck or two, that's a problem. Yeah, definitely. That seems like that could be a huge issue for consumers suddenly to see it rise. It's more than just the consumer. I mean, from the consumer standpoint, if you're a growing brand, they may not notice. But if you are trying to sell it to retailers that have expected to buy it at one price and now they have to buy it at another price, that's where you're going to get a lot of your pushback. And how many accounts would you say you're in now, both retail and on-premise? We are probably, I usually have this number at my fingertips, but it's changed in the last couple weeks. We're probably at about 50 accounts. Oh, that's exciting. All in New York. It's pretty good. 50 accounts that a large percentage of them seem to reorder. So you can't really ask for more than that. Your initial placement rate is great. But if accounts are reordering, that shows that you've got a potential hit on your hands. And tell me a little bit about what is the size that the production runs would have to get to for it to make sense to work with a distributor? It really depends on your skill set and your ability to be able to reach accounts on your own. So in our case, in my case, because I have the relationships with the initial accounts that I think we would be successful in, we want to keep the New York market to ourselves for as long as possible because once we work with a distributor, we are giving up a substantial point of our margin. And we're not at scale yet. So at this point, if we were to work with a distributor, we would essentially be making you know 5% margin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So right now we're making about 70 to 80% margin because we don't have to share with the distributor. Okay. And, you know, I think in general... It's very hard. It's very hard for me as a as a journalist, as a reporter to find out information about margins and markups like this is one of the biggest shrouded in secrecy sort of topics in the drinks industry. And it really is hard to understand what is a good margin, what is a bad margin, you know, how much markup is reasonable. So what are typical margins that should be expected in each of the different tiers of the industry? Okay, so when you're building your price model, the real answer is it depends. But there are there are definitely some guidelines to go by. I'll start I'll start with the retailer because that's what until I started this project I'm most familiar with. And I'm going to be talking about markup for this first bit of numbers I'm going to throw out there. Retailers are typically going to be marking up their product anywhere from 33% to 65%, perhaps even lower if you're talking about like a Costco or a really high turn, high volume business. Distributors are going to be working, flipping back to margin, probably trying to make about 25 to 33 
percentage points in terms of gross margin. And in that, you'll need to consider taxes, which will vary by state, as well as warehouse fees. And then as the supplier, we've been told that for sort of the strategic partners, they might be looking for a gross margin of 70 to 80 percent. But that's actually our margin right now. But remember, we're acting as both the supplier and the distributor and making that 78 to 80 percent. So that margin that we're making is where you really start to play around with what is the scale that we have now versus what is the scale that we would want to have in the future. And that can pretty much range anywhere from 30 to 80 percent, depending on your product and depending on where you are in that scale timeline. Huge range. Wow. That's a huge range. And so talk me through what are some of the challenges of scaling up to the next level from a cost standpoint? So there's sort of several different ways to look at scale. So right now, the scale that I'm talking about is the scale that we can get to as a small manufacturer with the co-packer that we're currently working with and the suppliers that we're working with in terms of cans and bourbons and all of that sort of stuff. We'll be able to get scale once we max out on the number of cases that we produce on a given run. We'll also get scale at that point. We will have the lowest cost per unit that we can get. Our shipping costs will also go down. Our can costs will go down. Our label costs will go down as we go from 250 to 1,700 cases. But what doesn't change at that point for us is our raw materials. So our bourbon costs are not necessarily going to go down once we hit that number. We just don't have the negotiating power or the scale to have that conversation to drop the price of our raw materials noticeably. That's where if we were to work with a strategic, they have the ability to really ramp up scale in terms of driving down those raw material prices. They also, because in most cases they're working with national distributors, they're able to have conversations to drive that distributor margin down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there's a long way between 1,700 cases and a level where a strategic partner supplier would be interested in acquiring a brand like ours. So sort of in between that, you would have what we might call private equity, access to capital that is less about driving your costs down and more about giving you capital to be able to do perhaps more marketing, more salespeople, get all of those sort of costs to kind of get you to that next level between the scale that we can do and the scale that a large strategic partner would require. Do you have a sense in these conversations, like how much are these strategics, whether it's private equity or venture capital, when they invest in a small brand, are they looking for a huge percentage of the brand or are they looking for complete acquisitions? What does that look like? Well, see, that's something that we're going to figure out. And just in terms of language, and this is me starting to sort of suss out how this all works as well in my own head, a strategic would be more like a Diageo mm. or an LVMH. A strategic is going to be, or a beer company, quite honestly, a strategic is going to be a company that's already in the industry, that's already working with distributors that they're an industry partner, basically. VCs and private equities, for the most part, at least how I kind of understand it, they are more capital providers and they would be giving us more money, more capital to increase our scale to make us potentially more interested to a strategic partner. Ah, interesting. Interesting. And I don't have a good sense of what they would be asking for. And I yeah. think it's going to differ wildly. So, 
from our standpoint, the things that we're going to be needing to figure out over the next you know, six months to a year, and it'll change and it'll evolve is does it make sense to go down the path of trying to build relationships with a strategic as the next partner through one of their incubators through that whole channel? Or does it make sense to court more of the private equities, the VC firms, those kind of relationships. Ooh, exciting. <laughs> the plot thickens. The plot thickens. Where will Hamlet Hound go next? <laughs> That's exciting to start thinking about. So at what scale does a strategic partner become interested in a brand? You know, that really depends. You know, you'll see examples like Casamigos being acquired by Diageo, which is, you know, there's a whole story about why that is not in any way typical because there's a lot about that brand that's not just George Clooney. It's got to be a brand that can make a difference to their bottom line at some point. And their bottom lines are really, really big. So, I think it depends on are you hitting a certain category that they don't have? Do they see that it's something where they can really drive scale? You know, we see acquisitions of everything happening with these big companies, but they also have incubators where it might make more sense to go into one of their incubators. It's hard to tell. I think for in most cases, there's a lot of scale that can be achieved before hitting the radar of one of these really big companies. And you know, we're trying to work out what that what that is and what that looks like. Let's talk a little bit about what the runway looks like for recouping costs and getting to profitability. Like what would you say success looks like after year one, after year two? Oh, that's a good question. And it keeps changing. Not driving ourselves into bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. <laughs> we'll start with that. There's always that. That's one end of the spectrum. <laughs> when we built the plan, you know, and I walked you through some of the numbers that that $40,000 nut to get to the first run, the sort of year one plan was to sell as much of that as we could and then take that money to be able to invest it and roll it back into doing a second run. And we had to put a little bit more money into it in order to get a second flavor up and running. So year two, our goal pretty much is to double what we did in year one. So in our case, because we're not doing any marketing, we're not spending on marketing because I'm a big believer in if you don't have wide enough distribution to support the marketing, you shouldn't be spending the money on the marketing. So in that sense, we didn't need a lot of capital to be able to invest in something that we weren't doing. So our runway is, you know, it's kind of a chunky runway. You have your first run. You try to sell through that. We had proof of concept. We felt good enough to be like, let's do a second run of that and introduce the second flavor. And we just kind of keep going, I guess, until it doesn't work anymore. If we decide it doesn't work anymore, then we kind of stop. But that's not what's happening. So our runway keeps kind of expanding it ahead of us because it's built to be able to keep building itself. So the next step before we really start to think about strategics or VCs or anything would be to find a distributor either in New York or certainly in Connecticut or Massachusetts to help us sell some of the product that we have and to continue to test that concept to see does it work once you're selling in accounts that aren't long-term friends of the founder. So to all those distributors out there, the phone lines are open. <laughs> we We've got some people that we're thinking of. <laughs> Ooh, the courting process begins. <laughs> yes, the courting process begins. For us, it's all been about proof of concept, seeing does it work? And it has worked so far. Our reorder rate is 
pretty good. We've got some accounts that have reordered two, three, going on their fourth reorder. So that for us is, it's very encouraging. And that is worth a lot more than the fancy marketing campaigns or the market research. That's our market research. That's excellent. All right. Well, that is it for us this afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me, Christy. You're welcome. This has been awesome. And now, welcome to Last Call, the part of the podcast where Eric and I talk about what we've been drinking. And recently, we did some drinking. Would you like to explain, Erica? So recently, we had our podcast launch party in New York City. We did. And we had several bottles that were very delicious at Parcel Wine downtown with some friends. Felicity, which one did you like most? I love the champagne. We had a Pierre Payard Boozy Grand Cru, and it was delicious, and it was subtle, and it was lean and minerally, and it was wonderful. What was your pick? I loved it. What about you? Yeah, that That was, I think, the first bottle that we opened, and that was so delicious. I actually had some fond memories of the last bottle of the evening, which, surprise, was a red because most of the evening we were drinking whites and then a couple rosés. So the red that we tried was Envenate. It's a Lusas Vina de Aldea. And that wine, it's an old vine, Mencia, made in Galicia. And this wine was very surprising to me. We didn't order it. They brought it out as a special gift. And it was kind of like any other wine that I've had recently. It it had all of the vibrancy of a Beaujolais, but kind of some more it had this smokiness to it and some pepperiness to it that you might get from a Syrah. So it was a very surprising wine. It was a really fun way to end that experience. I found it delicious and it's so affordable. I think on the retail price is around $40 in the US. So it was a very cool wine to try. Great night. And I should add that since this podcast is all about money, we set a budget for the night and we stuck to it. We did. That was impressive. We're getting better and better. (laughs) That's right. And that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks. And if you liked what you heard, help us spread the word. Follow and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. And if there's some aspect of the business that we have not covered, but you want to know more about, let us know. Felicity, how can people reach out? They should email us at podcast at businessofdrinks.com. We'll see you soon.